Well, I'm going to thank our listeners and our guest, uh, Bill McKibben, for joining us for another Climate Money Watchdog podcast, where we talk about working effectively to stop or mitigate climate change and get the biggest bang for the buck out of the huge investments represented by the Invest in America and Build Back Better Acts. As a reminder, Dina and I met back in the 1980s when the crisis of nuclear Armageddon was being made more complicated by the Defense Department's wasting money on weapons that didn't work and overpriced items like the notorious $435 hammers. Um, for the few of you who don't already recognize the name Bill McKibben, uh, Bill has been writing about the global uh, climate crisis uh, since his 1989 book, The End of Nature, and later founded 350.org, a global grassroots campaign to organize responses to climate change. We've invited Bill to speak with us today uh, about his new organization, Third Act, which recognizes the relationship between the global crisis of climate change and the survival of our democracy and its ability to address big problems like this and many others. Now, something that uh, particularly impressed me about uh, Third Act's launch event was a Kai Winwood's suggestion that we should proceed with equanimity. Um, and I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, so I looked it up. And uh, according to the, uh, the OED, it is mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. Uh, that's very close to our idea of, uh, of watchdogging, you know, which is simply making sure everything is going forward transparently uh, and as intended. Um, you know, if we charge ahead too quickly with climate investments like the, uh, the Invest in American Build Back Better Acts, uh, we stand a real risk of allowing the, the same kinds of boondoggles that we saw 30 years ago with the, uh, with the Pentagon um, that may further erode um, our nation's faith in our democratic process. Uh, and so what we're particularly interested in hearing from uh, from you about today, Bill, is is how you see the word equanimity and, and the idea of watchdogging and uh, how we can make sure to, to proceed in a way that builds um, faith in our democracy uh, rather than uh, risking further eroding it. Very good questions. So let's start first with the fact that climate change is a very particular kind of problem, different from ones that we've faced before, in that it's a timed test. That is to say, uh, if we don't win quickly, then we will not win, um, because uh, because our <laughs> opposition in this point, this case, is physics. And physics is dictating the terms here of engagement. So it's different from the political questions we're used to dealing with. Say healthcare, which is as long as I've been alive, we've been debating whether or not we should guarantee decent healthcare for all Americans, like every other industrialized country on earth. I think we should, and I think it's been a great shame, and I think a lot of people have died and gone bankrupt because we haven't. But that failure doesn't mean that when we finally get around to joining everybody else, it'll be harder to do it. Uh, climate's different. Once we've melted the Arctic, no one's got a plan for freezing it back up again. And so there is a deep imperative uh, uh, to move very fast. In fact, we've been told how fast we need to move. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the climate scientists that 
chronicle all of this for us have told us that if we don't cut emissions in half around the world by 2030, then our chance of meeting the targets that we set in Paris are slim to none. Um, um, we're going to go past those already dangerous temperature levels. So there really is an imperative to move quickly. Here. And, and so at one level, uh, you know, one can make the argument for a certain amount of just like break things and see what where it comes out and toss money at it and so yeah. on and so forth. But there's also a really interesting part of this uh, uh, debate that I think people are only now beginning to understand and focus on. And that's the other set of physical facts here. Over the last 10 years, the price of solar power and wind power and the batteries to store this stuff has dropped by about 90%. It's now in most places, the cheapest power in the world. So that means that a lot of our assumptions about you know, what's going to cost and what isn't are, are turned a little upside down. And what it really means is that the debate is not as we've understood it in the past, that we have to make this incredibly expensive transition because we have no choice. It's that if we do this right at all, it'll save us lots of money, not just the money that would come from having to somehow repair a broken planet, but also the money that we're just going to waste burning coal and gas and oil when we could be taking advantage of the sun and the wind that the good Lord sees fit to provide for free, uh, you know, every morning when the sun rises above the horizon. So that's to me what's so galling about the the tricks and 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 fraud that the fossil fuel industry and its allies are playing as we look at things like Build Back Better. So, I, I, for instance, I was just writing this week in this little newsletter I do for Substack about the um, money that Joe Manchin has insisted be put in the bill in order to do this scheme called carbon capture and storage from power plants. So let's talk about what that is, because I think it goes really to the heart of the great work that you guys do. Um, um, the problem, you know, the, the, the climate problem with a coal or gas fired power plant is that when you burn the coal or the gas, you put a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Uh, now, you could maybe, though no one's really quite done it yet, uh, figure out how to trap this carbon dioxide as it comes out of the smokestack, and then you could inject it into an old salt mine someplace underground and maybe store it safely. Um, that's what this huge amount of money, this subsidy for in the Build Back Better Act would provide. But if you think about it for even a minute, why would you do that? Why would you waste that huge subsidy? Why wouldn't you just spend the money to build the wind turbine or the solar panel in the first place, which doesn't produce any of the carbon that you then have to somehow, in this Rude Goldberg fashion, plumb back underground? So the, the, the insistence of the fossil fuel industry on keeping its business model going at any cost, and its business model is just, let's dig stuff up and burn it. Okay, their, their insistence that we have to do that is the only reason that we fund boondoggles like this and the political power that comes from having, you know, accumulated that much cash over the last two centuries is the only reason that 
this happens. There's no plausible sound reason to do it. Well, how, how would you want, I mean, I'm really familiar with big oil because they sued Pogo for 15 years because <laughs> we, 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 we got them in trouble. But um, how, we, and I know that they're like defense contractors and, you know, they're self-perpetuating. Hmm. Um, how would you watch, I, and I see that, you know, Exxon's like, oh, we're going to be able to dig, dig up oil, pump out oil and do all this in gas with zero emissions doing it. Well, you're still going to burn that, and that's going to go up. So it's kind of a dog chain tail. But how would you watchdog that? You know, if you were king of the world, how would you watchdog it? Because we know about their influence and all everything else. But how would you? You know, I'm well, worried about them setting up shell companies and 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 doing things that you don't that isn't really under their name. They don't even have to set up shell companies. I mean, they're doing this all completely out in the open. Um, um, just relying on their political power. I mean, Joe Manchin is the biggest recipient of fossil fuel money in Washington, which our is saying second, a second, lot. Our second president truth. right now. <laughs> I mean, he's essentially our prime minister, and he's a pawn of this industry. And it's all, I guess, legal. But it's, you know, it's it's that's where the game playing is going on, you know, over and over and over again. The way to, I mean, I think the way to, to kind of watchdog it is to is to, at least in part, I mean, part of it's obviously to focus in on all the details of all of this and all the particular scams and sums of money that they're pulling off. And people, of course, are trying very hard, who the people who are writing these bills and trying to make them work. But the other way is to pull back out and to look at the entire field of play. So this team at Oxford University published the most important study on all of this a couple of months ago. And what they concluded was that taken overall, you know, if we made a fast transition to renewable energy instead of the very slow, slow, slow one that the fossil fuel industry wants us to make, if we made that fast transition, the world would save about $27 trillion over the next couple of decades. Just because, again, once you've set up the solar panel, you don't have to pay. The, the sun delivers the energy for free. That's why Exxon hates the whole thing so much. Get rid for of the either. You know, that's coal. You never lived to live on top of the coal ash mountain, which I have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, I mean, that's right. There's this whole endless other list of reasons why you should get off fossil fuel. I mean, look, there was another study this year that demonstrated that just burning, just breathing the effects of combustion of fossil fuels, coal, gas, and oil, breathing the particulates in the soot, kills 9 million people a year around the world. That's about one death in five. That's more than HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, COVID, war, and terrorism combined, okay? And it's entirely unnecessary because we now have the technology to do away with burning that stuff, and it's cheaper than the stuff we're doing now. The only reason we don't do it is because of some combination of inertia and vested interest, and because we have a political system here and in too many other places that's just too easy for vested interest to game and manipulate. And so, so yeah, so, if I could interject, I, I think that that's really uh, the the level at which I'm trying to ask the question. I mean, I think it, we. We would already be living in a much better world if facts prevailed. Mm. Um, and I think there are already plenty of uh, of Americans that uh, believe the propositions that, that you just articulated. That's correct. 
Um, but I think, you know, with uh, with redistricting and other legislative manipulations, yep. um, you know, a big part of the problem that I think Third Act is trying to solve is the fact that uh, people on both sides of the aisle uh, don't feel like we can uh, rely on our democracy to reflect uh, the, the views of the majority. And so how do you well, that's how do you get out of the habits of like the horse trading uh, that that Manchin is engaging in, into one that that relies more directly on on you know the 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 reason that you just exhibited. Well, I'm I'm afraid that there's no way around having to organize. Um, that's the only way that we ever make change of any kind. So that's hence this third act thing. Now th this is uh, you know uh, for people over the age of 60. So you two have not yet reached the exalted state where you can- I'm 65 and- There you go. You're so 57, you, you, aren't you, Greg? He's got a few more years. You'll be- uh, but, I'm just 54. But what, we're, uh, what, we're, what we're arguing is that mm -hmm. we need to be playing, you know, young people are doing a good job of trying to hold power to account, but older people are required to make that effective. We vote in such large numbers and we own such a large share of the country's financial assets that it'll be very difficult to make change with, with without us. And there are two places in particular that we really are focused. One is on the stability of the planet, climate change, and the other is on the stability of our democracies. We're going to work hard on voter suppression and voting rights because, you know, at some level, that's what it's going to take in order to someday break the stranglehold of the of power that that allows these kind of um, schemes to be endlessly perpetrated. Neither of them are places where we're certain we can win. You know, I think that like many other Americans now, I wake up occasionally in the night despairing of the fact that, you know, the Antarctic is now breaking up and despairing of the fact that, you know, we had a, a, a bunch of, um, you know, people try to mount a coup and they're, they're likely to come back and try again, you know, and, and they may succeed. So these are scary things. But older people bring one very useful thing here, which is a certain amount of historical perspective. In the first act of our lives, we were around at least to bear witness to, if not to participate in, really profound cultural, political, social transformation. You know, the rise of the women's movement or the first Earth Day or, or whatever it was. Our second act, taken as a statistical whole, was perhaps a little more focused on consumerism and on citizenship. But that water is now flowed beneath the proverbial bridge. And, and we emerge into our third act with resources, with skills, with time, and with kids and grandkids, uh, and, and, and facing the very real possibility that we'll be the first generation to leave the planet a far worse place than we found it. We've got a lot of work to do, and we're capable of doing that work, but uh, I, I don't think there's any secret shortcut around it you know i don't think there's any trick that that, yeah. that well having also taken on another behemoth the pentagon um i found that you know it really 
Byzantine procurement and, you know, it's mm -hmm. sleep. But we, what we found was that we had to make it um, like every weapon system, the M1 tank. They said, and the, all the tech guys said, oh, my God, the laser rangefinder doesn't work on the cannon. I said, nobody will understand that. Understand it can't go 34 miles before either the powertrain and the engine or the transmission breaks. Mm. And people immediately that's understood that. And that's the same what happened with spare parts, mm. <laughs> known as the spare parts lady. And the year that we had spare parts, where Barbara Boxer was, had a little nut dipped in gold that was $1,100, you know, and everybody, they understood it, you know, Chuck Grass, everybody. Um, we froze the defense budget in the middle of the Reagan buildup. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, the, the Pentagon's been scamming since the Revolutionary War. So, we, you know, we've had a lot to go. But how would you do that on climate? How would you get people to um, understand, you know, you have to kind of bring it down to something that they can identify with? Well, I mean, truthfully, people are very much inclined to understand that big oil is a you know, bunch of uh, uh, ripoff artists, and they don't much like their utilities either, for the most part. Oh. Um, and and yeah. you know, so so it's not like you know one sort of pushing on an open door. Part of the problem is though that the regulation of all these things is carried on. Um, uh, I mean, at least with the Pentagon, there's the advantage of there being one of them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, uh, utility policy say in America is set by uh, 50 different state public utility commissions, each of which has been captured in one way or another by the utilities that they theoretically regulate. Uh, so it's gonna take a lot of activists willing to sit in seats and listen to unbelievably boring meetings for a long time in order to uh, you know, get some of this done. There are, other, there are other places that we can go after though, um, and some of them more centralized. Uh, for big banks, Chase, Citi, B of A, Wells Fargo, are the banks that really supply the huge amounts of money to the fossil fuel industry to keep it expanding. And so people are beginning to take them on. My last trip out before all the lockdowns began was to get arrested in the lobby of the Chase Bank nearest the Capitol uh, uh, at the beginning of this campaign to sort of start taking on Chase for its, because uh, uh, they're the biggest of all lenders to the fossil fuel industry. Those things are going to reaccelerate now. And, and people, especially older people who own the bulk of those assets are going to start trying to hold those power centers to account. Um, uh, as I say, I, I, don't, I don't despair that we can get this done, but I do wonder whether we can get it done in time. The, the, the thing that really is horrible about our system is that it's so easy to game it to prevent change from happening. Um, you know, actually making something happen uh, is extremely hard, but keeping things from happening is very, very easy in our political system. Mm -hmm. And so I worry that these, you know, just as we're watching with the Build Back Better bill, that they'll be able to, you know, uh, uh, really hold back change, not forever, but for long enough to melt the Arctic and the Antarctic. And, uh, you know, that's sort of what it's going to take to turn this into a very different planet. I got one little other quick question I'm kind of pondering um, is I'm worried about the most, a lot of this is going to be loans and grants. 
It's not going to be contractual. It's going to be a lot. And a lot of them are going to be grants to the states and local governments. And I'm really. Yeah. Hmm? And tax credits. is yeah. the and, Yeah. And I'm really worried about the red states who are conscientious objectors to doing this. It's just like in Mississippi when they sent the COVID money. She goes, oh, we'll spend $10 million on the COVID. The rest of the $100 million we're going to spend on building new prisons. And actually, POGO stopped that. When I, I, I sent it off to POGO and they stopped it. But how are we going to, you know, there's a lot of red states with a lot of money going to them. Yes. This, this is a very interesting, um, this is one of the odd, interesting little parts of this. Um, uh, that's definitely a worry. And and these states have regressive energy policies in all kinds of ways, but they also tend to be the places where renewable energy has gotten a real foothold. So if you go to the Kansas or Iowa uh, right. yeah. legislature, um, you know what? There's there's lobbyists from those wind and sun energy industries there too, and they're beginning to hold their own because they're producing more jobs and more revenue and things than the oil and gas guys. So there's, that's definitely, there's, there's a whole lot to what you're saying, and there's going to be a huge amount of money wasted over the next while. Most of it's not going to be wasted on sun and wind. Most of it's going to be wasted on boondoggles like carbon capture and storage uh, that are, you know, just an effort to keep the business model of the fossil fuel industry alive. They need something to burn, and we need to stop burning stuff. And what's that's, what's the importance of grassroots people, but mainly also whistleblowers in this? Because people, there's so many, I, we can't be the eyes and ears in all these little towns. Yeah. And so whistleblowers have done a remarkable job from within the oil industry, um, especially over the last five years, done us the enormous favor of providing the documentation to make clear that this industry knew everything there was to know about climate change back in the 1980s. That, that Exxon was, you know, understood exactly what was going to happen, what the temperature was going to be in 2020 uh, is is interesting for moral reasons, because it makes it clear that they're, you know, uh, that they have a um, that they have a large ethical deficit. Uh, but it's also important for legal reasons, because there are now lots of jurisdictions suing the hell out of these guys. Uh, mm -hmm pointing out that they knew what was going on and then lied about it systematically. And I would say that my reading of where we are right now is that some of the most important uh, officials in America, given our gridlock in Washington, uh, are going to be the attorney generals in New York and in California and in a few other places where the AG has a big enough staff and the state is big and important enough that the, the Exxons and Facebooks and things can't duck them. Um, um, and I, I, I have a feeling that a lot of the action is going to get played out there, too. So I know one thing that we've uh, encountered time and time again with uh, with the Pentagon is, um, you know, once again, that there are plenty of big players uh, in the private sector that have moral deficits, as you say, and, and they're caught. And they're actually barred from doing business with the government. Um, but they have very elaborate networks of subsidiaries and, and other uh, interests uh, that allow them to, in effect, continue to do business with the government. Yeah. And so when, when people apply for and get these grants and loan guarantees and, and tax credits um, for things that, that may be obvious boondoggles to us, whether it's you know, hydrogen uh, storage or um, carbon capture, uh, things like that, 
you know, we, we might hope that uh, once you catch somebody in in uh, in, in the act, uh, that they're barred from you know access to the, uh, that part of the the government's largesse. Uh, but it turns out that it can be extraordinarily difficult to uh, to make those connections. Um, and, you, you know, it's only done through elaborate research. I'm glad you guys have some experience here. And I will say that there is a lot of great research that comes now out of the climate movement, too. We understand a lot about the banks, the players, you know, this sort of thing. And we've had some success in standing up to them. This divestment movement from the fossil fuel industry has become the largest anti-corporate campaign in history. We started it about a decade ago, and we're now at about $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested from fossil fuel. And it's made, among other things, their cost of capital go way, way up, which is one reason why they're so eager to get some more government subsidies. Um, um, let's remember, let's just back up as we're ending here. Let's just back up and remind ourselves about the biggest subsidy of all time by orders of magnitude. We allow the fossil fuel industry to use the atmosphere as an open sewer. It's permitted to put the single most dangerous thing on earth, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere for free. And that you know, the, the current estimate, high-end estimate for how much damage global warming will do this century if unchecked, tops out at about $551 trillion, which is more money than currently exists on planet Earth. So that's the scale of the subsidy that we've provided the fossil fuel industry simply by letting them, I mean, and it's as if, you know, you ran a restaurant in you know, Washington or whatever, and, and your solution for getting rid of your garbage each night was to just go shovel it into the middle of the street. There's no difference. I mean, it's, you know, yes, you'd make more money if that was what you were allowed to do, but pretty soon Washington would be overrun with rats and everybody have leptospirosis and that'd be that. Um, that's why, you know, a mark of civilization is that we ask people to clean up after themselves unless they have enough political power like the fossil fuel industry that they can exempt themselves from being citizens like the rest of us. All right. Well, I don't want to uh, um, wrap up today without uh, at least expressing the interest that uh, uh, we think this is going to take quite a while, you know, years of, uh, you know, I, I don't know that we have decades, but uh, I, I think even if we save ourselves from disaster, this is something that, that we will be talking about working on for decades to come. Um, and express our appreciation for you coming out when you're busy launching a, a new, very important organization, and just say that we uh, we hope that you or other Third Act uh, leaders will be back for future podcasts uh, to talk about both uh, successes and, and ongoing challenges. And, and we'd love to tap into your third way um, warriors because you know there they can be eyes and ears on the ground that you know can't can't be done. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you guys very much. And, and, uh, and thank you for keeping on. I know that uh, perseverance and persistence are the only things that in the end actually work. So many thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.